We've all faced one, a threshold, a point of decision, a moment of choice. Do we stay or do we go? What awaits us on the other side? Will we cross the line from guilt to freedom, fear to faith, from doubt to trust, from darkness to light, from death to life? So you're here at the threshold. What will you do? Uh, decisions. Decisions. Lots of decisions in life, right? What will I do when I grow up? One of the first questions we ask, besides, you know, where's my baba? Where will I go to college? Who will I marry? Will I marry? Kids. One. None. Four. A dozen. Birth them. Foster them. Adopt them. What am I going to do? How about spending? Saving? Investing? You know, I'm 55. Some of you are as well. What now? Work till you're 80? Retire and start another chapter? Stay in Shanahan? Move somewhere warm? Or the Stroman option? Move six hours north? Because this place isn't quite cold enough, right? Hi, Mary. Mary listens to the podcast. Don't tell her I mentioned her name. Let's test to see if she really does listen or just tells me that. Decisions. There are just, this is just one of a number of contexts in which discernment is required. We started a series last week on the topic of discernment. How do we walk wisely in an incredibly, wildly broken world? I love the definition of discernment that Ruth Haley Barton put in her book, Pursuing God's Will Together, to pursue the will of God in every possible way whether it is uh, determining an action he wants us to take, a decision he wants us to make, or a moral choice or path he wants us to walk, discernment is not optional. We need discernment. So here's her definition. Discernment, in a most general sense, is the capacity to recognize and respond to the presence and activity of God, both in ordinary moments and in the larger decisions of our lives. Just sit with that definition for a moment. What is the starting point of discernment? Well, according to the definition, the starting point is God. It is the capacity to recognize and to respond to God and to his presence and to his activity in absolutely everything. As Christ followers, we live our lives completely in tune to the reality of God. We believe he is and that he's broken into this human existence. Our eyes are open and our ears are constantly attuned to the presence and activity of God in literally every situation, in every decision, and in every moral choice. We ask things like, where is God in this? How is God in this? Is God in this at all? These are valid questions that should be on the lips of everyone and anyone who is exerting spiritual discernment. 
The word discern means to separate, to discriminate, to determine, to decide, to distinguish between two things. By the way, I feel the need to say this. On a weekend that we celebrate the life of Martin Luther King Jr., you might hear me use the word discriminate and wonder why in the world we would use that in a positive context. The word discriminate in its classic sense is not a bad thing. The classic definition is the ability to recognize a distinction, to differentiate. However, like many words, this word has a secondary meaning. That is, to make an unjust or a prejudicial judgment or distinction. When we use the word discriminate in the context of spiritual discernment, we're employing the first definition, not the second one. Spiritual discernment is the ability to distinguish or discriminate between good, that which is of God and draws us closer to God, and evil, that which is not of God and draws us away from God. Romans 12, 2 is a key passage in understanding spiritual discernment. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. I love the way this is stated in the message translation. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Would you put that on your fridge? on your dashboard, everywhere. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Focus on God. You will be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants from you, and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out in you and develops well-formed maturity in you. I think the first line really says it all. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. For too many of us, we do not challenge what the world throws our way. We do not actively, mentally refute it. We do not say in our minds, that does not sound right. Or, or is that really true? We just accept it because it's out there. No, because a, because a teacher said it, or science has proven it, or TV has aired it, or the newspaper has printed it, or the government has legalized it, or the internet has disseminated it, we swallow it, hook, line, and sinker like it's gospel. God wants us to be committed to discerning and doing the will of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. Catch the second line of that verse. Instead, fix your attention on God. This really brings us back to that definition we looked at, doesn't it? Discerning is exercising our, our, our capacity as spirit-filled Christ followers to recognize and to respond to the presence and activity of God in literally everything. Now, it's probably important to start by kind of asking a question. When is discernment needed? When do we need discernment as we're walking through this life? So let me give you just a list of areas that you need discernment. We all need it. The first is moral choices. We need discernment to know the difference between right and wrong. We need God's Holy Spirit prompting us to help us to understand this is the right thing to do. This is righteousness. This is the wrong thing to do. This is unrighteousness. This is evil. So we we need that. Further, we need it for life decisions. Uh, Should I do this or should I do that? What should my career path be? Who should I marry? All those things certainly require discernment, the ability to make good decisions, good life decisions. 
The third, and, and please forgive me, I didn't get good builds here, so I'm giving you the third and fourth, kind of cheating. The third is information sources. We need discernment in figuring out whether the information we're receiving is good information or not. I, I had, uh, is it from God or is it from someone else? I had a great interaction with a, with a number of Southfielders this week and, and friends from other lives that I have on Facebook about a stat that I heard on the news one morning. It said two-thirds of Americans get their news from social media. In my opinion, that number should be zero, okay? And I seriously wonder, do we seriously wonder why we're in the condition we're in when we get all of our news from either Facebook, Twitter, or whatever else? We had this fun and, and lively and friendly conversation with many valid input, insights. But here's the thing. Whether your news source is Twitter or Walter Cronkite, which you'd be doing seances and that would be bad, but whether your news source is Twitter or Walter Cronkite, all news sources need to be tested. We don't just take it in because someone else said it. They need to be challenged. They need to be verified. Lack of discernment just buys it because I see it or hear it. Back in the day when newspapers were relevant, there was a line Just because something is in the newspaper doesn't mean it's true. We need to be critical thinkers, not cynical thinkers, okay? Too many of us have become cynical thinkers. Cynical thinkers question everything and believe nothing. Critical thinkers question everything and believe what they discover to be true. There is no place for cynical thinking in the realm of spiritual discernment. On the other hand, critical thinking guided by God's Spirit is a powerful tool to distinguish from truth from error. I had another Facebook interaction here recently. I had a friend who posted something about a a religious institution, a a school that I, I really love and admire. And in the post, it it kind of went down two paths. One, it talked about the financial problems this uh, institution is going through. And the other was the list of heresies that are emerging from this particular school. Now, what I did, rather than just reading it and going, hmm, it's on the internet, it must be true, I did a little investigating to find out what was going on. Here's what I found. The institution is having a financial crisis, just like every Christian college. Uh, every Christian college is having a tough time. And there was no evidence of this, of this heresy that was going on anywhere. I looked and I couldn't find it. I could prove one part, but I could not prove the other part. As a Christ follower, exercising discernment, I believe the benefit of doubt is in order when rumor mongers are posting on their blog from their mommy's basement. We are way too quick to buy something just as fact, just because it appears in our news feed. We need to challenge it. That's discernment. Discernment looks it up to find out, is this really true? Is there any evidence of this or not? Now, it's already on the list. The next area that we need discernment is biblical application. We, we sometimes make a statement. Lots of, lots of preachers do. Lots of Christians do. The Bible is black and white. And in a lot of areas, there is no question. It is black and white. If it says do not murder, it doesn't mean do not murder uh, unless you're mad at somebody. I mean, it's black and white, period. It's there, all right? But there are a lot of areas that, that are not quite so black and white. You read it and you go, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? Sometimes there are nuanced implications. Sometimes we have to figure out the contextual implication of something. 
Sometimes we have to figure out the timeless principle that was embedded in a cultural example. I think this is one of the beautiful things about the Bible. It could be written 2,000 years ago, and it could use an example about idol meat. And in the process of talking about idol meat, which we don't tend to eat, we just eat meat, right? Eat meat from Johnsonville brats. They're great, okay? But we, we don't eat idol meat. We don't go to the local temple and say, give me a pound of your, they wouldn't sacrifice pork. I don't know what they would have. Um, chicken, probably. Anyway, give me some of your chicken. We don't eat idol meat, right? So as a person without discernment, we might just go, well, don't have to worry about that one. Check. Good. One less thing I have to obey in the Bible. Um, no, there's a principle going on behind there. And we need discernment to figure out how does that apply today? What are the situations in which we eat idol meat, even though it's not exactly the same? We need, we need, we need discernment for that. We need discernment in our relational interactions. Who can I trust? Just because someone has a title, just because someone has a position, just because someone has written a book, just because someone has a series of seminars, doesn't mean I just go, well, of course, I'll trust them. They're on a particular radio station or whatever. We, we need to ask, who can I trust? Who is a good influence on me? Who is drawing me closer to God? Who is pushing me away from God? We also need discernment in assessing impact. Assessing impact. How is the experience I'm going through right now going to grow me into the person God wants me to be 20 years from now? Or maybe we're looking back. How is who I am right now influenced by maybe a decision or an action 20 years ago? We need discernment to be able to assess the impact. I think Joseph had great discernment when he was able to say, what you, my brothers, meant for evil, God meant for good. That's discernment, to be able to look at a situation that might be absolutely horrible right now and to be able to see the way God is using that to grow us into the person he wants us to become. I hope this list helps you to see that spiritual discernment is essential for every believer. We need to develop it. Now, one thought before we move on. In two weeks, we're going to talk about discernment in community. This is community right here. We're together. We're, we're a body of believers. And a lot of us interact, whether it's in the hallway or, or in small groups, we have relationships with each other. And that's, that's vital. We need that. We need each other in the discernment process. Discernment done in isolation very often leads to bad places. We need other people that bump up against us and help us to grow. We need the hearts and minds of those around us to help us to discern. Last week I made a comment that, that I cannot discern for you. You have to develop the ability to discern. You don't just, you know, we don't have a little special number. Call Dennis, he'll make your decisions for you. We, we, don't, we don't do that, right? So I, I want to make clear, though, um, I, w- I just want to clarify that, that, you know, hopefully there are older, more experienced people than you in your life that have developed a depth of discernment. I would hope that a pastor... The, the kind of designated driver of your spiritual community would be a reliable source of discernment. I'm not saying that you shouldn't turn to others for wisdom or guidance or discernment. What I'm saying is that God does not want you to just farm it out. He doesn't want you to just give that to someone else. He wants us to sharpen our discernment skills, every one of us. I think the one of the ways that we can flex our discernment muscle is to bounce things off people who have some discernment. Do some thinking, do some praying, then come and ask the other person, what do you think? 
How would you arrive at this conclusion? You see, if you come to me or someone else and just say, what should I do? That's farming it out. That's looking for someone else to tell you what action you should take. It's letting someone else do your homework. We grow in discernment when we don't just ask someone else what we should do, but when we ask them, how do I figure out what to do? How do I figure out the steps? Help me to know the way you would do this. Ask process questions. Don't just ask for a declaration. Ask process questions that that grow discernment in you. Does this make sense? Nod or something. I need to know if you're there. Yeah. Okay, I guess not. Nobody's nodding. They all fell asleep. I'm just, Mary's listening. Oh, well, the rest of you. Anyway. Okay, so let's get to the meat of this thing. Let's drill down into the heart of discernment. To make a decision, we need information, right? You got to have some information. Further, if we're making a decision, we, we seldom bring ourselves that, to that decision with can I say it this way, complete objectivity. What do I mean? Well, a lot of us kind of already know what we think. We already have an idea of what we want. We already know what we believe without any information. We kind of arrive at going, I know what I want. I know what I'd like to see, right? Discernment comes up against two major challenges. One is internal and the other is external. So let's start with the external. If I'm going to discern well, I need information. Well, congratulations. You live in an era that's been coined the information age. Can you think of a better time in history to be well informed? Think about this. For basically the first 1900 years of church history, nobody carried a Bible to church. Why was that? They didn't believe in the Bible? No, a lot of people didn't own one. They couldn't afford one. There weren't that many in print. And even if they did, they couldn't read it. I'm guessing in our house, we have multiple Bibles in multiple translations. Now, I'm old enough to still remember uh, when the New International Version came on the scene in 1973. Uh, This is not to say that other translations did not exist. But if you were an evangelical Christian, you probably owned a King James Bible. And you probably quoted from the King James Bible. The NIV was the first serious evangelical challenge to a version that had been dominant since 1611, all right? This morning, I'm guessing there are a variety of Bibles present. Everything from KJV to NIV, NLT, CEV, ESV, the message. I could go on. If you got your app this morning, you have about 50 different translations on that app. So I read a verse this morning, and someone thinks, That's not what my version seems to be saying. It's funny that sometimes more information actually leads to more confusion, doesn't it? You kind of go, what's going on here? Technology, as well as affluence, have led to an abundance of information. So one of the challenges we come up against with information in this external challenge is quantity. There's just a lot of information. How do you comb through it all? And the other issue is quality. Just because it's available, does it mean it's good? Is it really good? We have to ask ourselves that question. So I'm looking in the Bible and I'm looking at different people who had to make decisions. And what I found that there were at least three people who were associated with King David who had issues when it came to the quality of the information that they had. They had a great quantity of information, but the quality was suspect. And these are some of the things that we might run into as well. 
King Saul, for example, he's looking for advice from God. He's not hearing from God because he does not have a relationship with God. And so what does King Saul do? In 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 7, King Saul says, find me a medium. He says, find me a witch. Finally, someone who deals with evil spirits so that I can get some advice. He had actually outlawed mediums in Israel. And here he is asking for advice from what we could describe as poorly sourced information. This is poorly sourced information. He was turning to the world for godly wisdom. You know what? If you turn to the world for wisdom, guess what you get? You get worldly wisdom. You don't necessarily get godly wisdom. We need to look at the source and ask ourselves, is this poorly sourced information? Sometimes it's not that it's poorly sourced information. It's conflicting information. So when Absalom, I'm sorry, not Absalom, when Rehoboam is taking over uh, the kingdom from his father Solomon, he's wondering what he should do, how he should rule, what kind of king he should be. And the people come to him and say, your father was a hard taskmaster. Remember, this is Solomon. For the most part, as we read about Solomon's reign, you hear a lot of positives, a lot of building going on. The kingdom was becoming great. Well, it became great at a cost. It became great, great on the backs of people. Your father was a hard taskmaster. He's, they say to, to Rehoboam, lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes your father has imposed on us. Then we will be your loyal subjects. So Rehoboam at least listens. He says, give me three days to think it over. And he draws in the older men who had been the advisors of King Solomon. He says, what is your advice? How should I answer these people? The older counselors reply, if you are willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. It's this great advice, right, from these people who have been there. They've seen the way Solomon ruled. They saw the results, and they're saying, there's a different way. There's a better way. And verse 8 says, but Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men. I suspect he knew what he wanted to do even before he heard the information. So what does he do? Well, he turns to his peers. He turns to his peers. These guys are his age, and he says, what do you think I should do? And these guys say, you tell these people that they're a bunch of complainers. Say, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. I am going to be laying heavy burdens on you. I'm going to impose a heavier burden on you. My father beat you with whips. I'm going to beat you with scorpions. And that was the speech he gave to the people. And he lost 10 tribes. 10 out of tribe, 10 out of 12, leave him. Uh, sometimes we have conflicting information. And it's hard to know which way should we go with this information that we've been given. Then there's misleading information. Sometimes information seems to be coming from a really godly source. You know, you're reading a book. You bought it at a Christian bookstore. It's got to be Christian. You know, and you're reading it, and you're, you're kind of going, something doesn't smell like right, and it's not dinner. I, it's, I'm just, but, but, it's, but it's Christian. It's got to be good, right? I mean, it was on the Oprah book list. It's got to be good, right? Absalom. Absalom takes over from his father. Oh, it takes over his father David's kingdom. Actually, a rebellion. Kicks him out. And uh, as as this is all coming together, a man comes back into town, and his name is Ahithophel. Ahithophel was an advisor to David. 
And he comes to Absalom, and Absalom says, what are you doing here? Why are you not being loyal to my father? He says, well, I go with the guy God chose. Clearly, God has chosen you. Uh, you can just hear Absalom going, oh, this guy's wise. He's going with the guy God chose. So he turns to Hithophel and says, what should I do next? Now listen to his advice. See how biblical this sounds. Go and sleep with your father's concubines. For he has left them there to look after the palace. Then all Israel will know you have insulted your father beyond hope of reconciliation. And they will throw your support, their support to you. So they set up a tent on the palace roof. That palace roof is not a good place for this family. They set up a tent on the palace roof where everyone could see it. And Absalom went and had sex with his father's concubines. It says in verse 23, this just, I mean, you you need to just kind of do your devotions here the rest of the week. Absalom followed Ahithophel's advice just as David had done. For every word Ahithophel spoke seemed as wise as though it came directly from the mouth of God. Except it didn't at all. What part of sleeping with your dad's staff in public sounds like coming from the mouth of God? We face a fair share of this these days. People who seem to have a good reputation, but misquote and distort the very word of God. And we say, but she sounds like she speaks the very words of God. I I remember going to his conference. He sounded like he spoke the very words of God. We had a lot of different information thrown at us. And the quality sometimes is suspect. We face two major challenges. External challenges and internal challenges. External is the quality and quantity of information. I mean, Google just about anything. Opinions are abundant, right? And a lot of them are inaccurate. Lots of information, but the quality is suspect. Let's move to the second challenge. Because I really do believe this is, kind of, this is the starting point of discernment, okay? The external challenge is, is quantity and quality information. The internal challenge is me. It's me. It's what I bring to the table. Whether information is abundant or scarce, accurate or ignorant, I am the one filtering the information. And far too often I come to that information with an agenda. I know what I want to do. And I'm looking for information to reinforce my opinion rather than approaching it objectively to arrive at decision through a careful discernment process. We know what we want to do. And there are times that we'll even eliminate advice that we know will challenge what we want to do. Because we have an agenda. We know what we want to do. If I'm really going to grow in discernment, I need to fall in love with Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? I need to know this about me. I need to know I am not naturally objective. I need to know I have strong opinions and desires. The natural side of me can bend the facts to reinforce my opinions. The first step in the, in the, in the discernment process is indifference. It's indifference. What do I mean by that? Let me quote the, the ultimate verse on indifference. It's found in the prayer Jesus prayed in the garden. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, 
Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw away beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You see it there? Yet not my will, but yours be done. That is indifference in its purest form. Let's, let's just look this over, this passage over, and break it down. First it says he withdrew. He withdrew. It is hard to do too much deep thinking in the middle of the noise. The discernment process requires quietness of soul. It requires solitude. It requires us to draw away from the racket. He withdrew. It says, in fact, he did what he usually did. So this wasn't the one-time thing, right? The second says, he knelt and prayed. Discernment is a spiritual stance. It is a conversation, an ongoing conversation with God. A conversation formed through years and years of wilderness moments. For many of us, we decide what we want, then we just ask God to bless it. This is what I plan to do, God bless me. Right? But the discerning person starts with what God wants. That's the starting point. It's God. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. I love this. Jesus gave voice to his preference. Indifference didn't mean he didn't have an opinion. Indifference did not mean he didn't have a desire, an inclination, a way he wanted things to go. In reality, Jesus knew exactly what he wanted. Let this cup pass. I don't want to die this way. But we see two things. First, he was aware of that desire within himself. That's important. If you're going to, be, if you're going to have a true stance of indifference, I need to know what I want. I, I need to know what it is that I desire in the first place. Many of us, we like to act objective but we really know what we want deep inside and we try to manipulate God and manipulate other people. We manipulate the Bible. We manipulate the facts to conform to our desires. Jesus knew in this case that there was a sense in which he was not objective. Let this cup pass from me. Second for Jesus, God's desire mattered more than his desire. That is true indifference. When I'm able to say, I know what I want, but my greatest want is to want what you want. I want what you want, God. Which leads us to that line, yet not my will, but yours be done. In these words, Jesus reveals what we mean by indifference. You may be struggling with the use of that word right now. And if you are good, I love when you struggle. Because when you struggle, you have a chance to grow. Jesus reveals that the opposite of indifference is not having a desire. That, that, that's not it, that you, that you don't have a desire. No, the opposite of indifference is an agenda. It's to know what I want, and I'm going to do everything I can to force my agenda in this situation, including manipulating God, the Bible, and people in order to make all the facts fit what I want. My agenda. That's the thing I want. Most of all, the indifferent person knows their agenda and willingly abandons it for the greater good of the glory of God, God's holy will. He abandoned his agenda. This is true indifference. 
God, it is true that I have wants, but I want what you want. The starting place of discernment is a stance of indifference. I know I have desires. I know I have opinions. I know I can manipulate God and his word to get what I want, but my ultimate want is not my agenda. My ultimate want is God's way and God's will. It reminds me of Psalm 37.4. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Some people read that verse and go, magic. All I have to do is delight in God and I can get everything I want. No, you know what the psalmist is saying? The more you delight in God, the more you will want what God wants. He will give you his desires. Your desires will be his desires. They will be one. In the face of all the information, in the sea of misinformation, I know that the issue is really not the information. The issue is me. The discerning person lives every day with these words on his or her lips. Yet not my will but yours be done. His mother prayed similar words of indifference in Luke one thirty eight. Here I am. Here am I. The servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. She recognized that the process that was about to take place was going to lead to controversy for the rest of her days. She had some desires of her own. But she recognized herself as a servant of the Lord. May it be with me according to your word. That is an ultimate expression of indifference and a starting point for discernment. Father God in heaven, grow us as discerning people. We do live in this sea of information. I mean, it is all around us. And we tend to think that the more informed we are, the better decision we'll make. The more information we gather, all that, we'll make a good decision. But the reality is the flaw in the formula is our own heart. Help us to approach information with indifference. Indifference that says, I'm not imposing my agenda here. I want what God wants. And so I'm sincerely seeking, even if I read what the Bible says and I go, I don't like that. That's not the way I would do it. We say, but that's what God says. That's what God wants. And I prefer his will to my agenda. Grow our hearts in discernment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our servers are going to come right now and receive the offering. Brian is approaching. Uh, he's got his phone out, which you can go ahead and get your phone out as well because the, the links are there ready to go. Before we go there, I, I do want to say thank you to all the people who came out Monday night and donated blood. We received 56 units of blood, and there were actually nine more people than that that came and volunteered and, and for one reason or another were uh, deferred in that time. So just a, a, a great turnout. It was interesting. I, I, I referenced Ruth Haley Barton at the beginning of this uh, uh, at the beginning of this teaching, and I got an email from her. I'm part of a, a group that she that she uh, did some teaching with, and and she commented that her mother uh, on Christmas Eve died of the same disease that Kim's dad died of, which is a rare disease. So to know someone else that had that, and uh, we have a, a church family member here that their family member has gone through this as well. And each of these people will attest to you 
that because someone was willing to give blood, their family member got another week and another week and another week. And so I, I don't know. I just think it brings a reality to it. And some of you were incredibly brave. You don't like needles and you went for it. Some of you didn't like the fact that you had to lay down instead of sitting up, and it, and it bothered you, but you said, I'm going to do this. And so I commend you for your bravery in the face of, of something intimidating. I gave double, which was really cool. They have the double machine, so that's why I look so much thinner today. <laughs> anyway. I did double, too. And he I, cried. I, I raced. I, I'm sorry. Bob, Bob Coyne and I actually were laid down just about the same time, and I said, let's race. And uh, yeah, he beat me. Well, it's funny because their, their instructions are a little bit vague. They've got a thing that you're supposed to squeeze when the blood is going out and then not squeeze when the blood is coming in. Brian thought you were just supposed to hold it clenched the whole time, so he did. And uh, I was real sore. I'm telling you what, <laughs> muscles, yeah. I, just amazing. So All one let's, of them. let's get to this. Yeah, uh, so our, the first thing on our list is created to be creative. Yeah, created to be creative, my understanding is a, a great outreach that's coming up. Did you read about it? Uh, yeah, I did. It's what did happening you find out? on January 16th. It's happening on January Pong. 16th. And this is an opportunity for, uh, for, for women. to. You can invite someone to come along. It's, there's painting involved. There's fun, laughter, good times. Uh, and it's, it's actually a two-for-one registration. So it costs 25 bucks. But with that registration, you're allowed to invite a friend who doesn't you're go to Southfield. To. Or, or, yeah. yeah, encouraged you. Mm-hmm. Not allowed. But, uh, allowed and encouraged. To yeah. invite a friend who doesn't go to Southfield to come hang out for that night. Uh, so again, just a, a nice, easy way to kind of ease somebody who you want to see in these empty chairs. So because, uh, because I'm sorry. supplies need to be purchased, we need to get those registrations in today. The 19th? Okay, the email says 16th, so it's the 19th. Well, don't believe the email. <laughs> some, some goofball wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> it is Mary January didn't 19th. see that. <laughs> okay, uh, second thing is our Dave Ramsey um, journey group about financial peace. And uh, registration has been uh, creeping up on that, and it's creeping up to the point that it's a, a good-sized group now. Uh, materials do need to be purchased, so again, it's important. I believe they start Tuesday night, so it's important to go ahead and uh, get registered for that today. The third announcement is about winter session journey groups. Make sure to read through all those in the link to the email and get signed up for one that uh, interests you or maybe try something that, that might not necessarily interest you, something outside your box. Uh, I challenge you to do that. With, a, lot, a lot of groups have already started. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't jump in. I know sometimes that's a little intimidating. The other thing we often notice is that people will sign up for a group and then not show up for the first session and they say, oh, I'll do it in the summer. No, just go ahead. Go ahead. You signed up. Go ahead and show up. Uh, with registrations, I want to let everybody know that Arctic Blast is full. So, again, in two weekends, uh, if you have a junior hire who's going with us to Lake Geneva, we will let you know uh, what time we're leaving and what they need to bring and all that. That's all coming to you, and we're really pumped about that. Uh, the last announcement we have is about the women's retreat in February. And it's coming. And it's coming. I won't be going, but I'll probably be serving food. Yeah. Again, we, I love this every year. Uh, when, whenever there's a women's retreat, there's a bunch of guys who get together, and we get to serve the women lunch and do all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, even, even though it's the Women's Day, we get to, we get to crash and serve. And so it's that, really that particular link gives you information as well as the place to sign up. Yep. Do you have other student stuff? Arctic Blast. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes, I do. Uh, we have in, in a month. So on February 16th, we are taking our students, both Refuge and Revive, to Feed My Starving Children in Aurora. Again, 
in preparation for Green Lake and all the serving that we do up there, we want to make sure that our, our kids see the value in serving. And this is a, a chance for them uh, to... We, in the past, we've done the 30-hour famine where we raise money and then literally starve ourselves for 30 hours uh, to, to, um, to understand what it's like for kids who don't have meals coming every day. Uh, this is the other end of that. So this is packing the meals that they raised the money for. Uh, so it's, it's kind of cool to, to have both experiences there. Uh, and again, we will be, this, will, this link will be in the email next week, and we're going to be signing or asking kids to sign up this week at both groups. So if, somebody, if one of your kids comes home and says, hey, I want to do this Be My Starving Children thing, uh, there will be more details coming to you this week. Wonderful. So I want you to leave today quite literally with the taste of communion on your lips. Taking, taking that taste with you. A unique taste, isn't it? I remember as a little kid, our, our, our family uh, started going to a church like this, and I was allowed to take communion. And I remember the first time I tasted that cracker and went, this isn't a saltine. It tastes weird. It tastes different. It's unleavened bread. And through the years, that, that flavor has just had a unique connection. I use that bread in no other context in life. It just has a unique connection with with thinking about that moment of taking bread and cup. Last week, we started doing something that we're going to be doing all year long. We're asking ourselves during communion, how is it with your soul? And then we're using uh, 21 different questions to probe that a little bit. We introduce it one week. We, we work with it during that week. And we come back the next week to, to kind of use this time of reflection to say, where did that question take me? So the question this week was, is Jesus real to me? It's funny, as I interacted with some of you, different reactions. Some people, from a more objective standpoint, kind of went, how can you even ask that question? I mean, he's real to everybody, whether they think he is or not. Um, Yeah, he is. But just because something is real, do we really take that reality in personally? Does it impact us? Others took the question and kind of immediately said, of course he's real to me. My question is, am I real to him? I love this about these questions because that's really taking that question and processing it with your soul. It's not just answering the three things I say, answer this during the week, but taking it and really allowing it just kind of that soaker holes holes into your soul, sinking deeply uh, in. So I don't know where the question took you this week. Maybe right now you're going, oh yeah, the question. (laughs) Forgot about that. I don't know. But we'll keep doing this. So is Jesus real to me? I want you to walk away today with the reality of that taste on your lips. To be reminded that someone died, even though he did not want to die that way, he put aside his own agenda to do the holy will of the Father. Um, The verses on the screen, the prayer. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. May it be with me according to your word. We're just going to leave that up there right now during communion. Uh, Sherry, we're going to go straight from this on into the music, okay? So sit with that verse for a moment and then go to one of the four stations around the room, take communion, and then come back to your seat and we'll be dismissed together.
Would you mind going back to that slide, Sherry? Sorry about that. She did what the piece of paper said to do. Stand with me. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And with that taste in our mouths today, we are reminded of the constant ongoing presence of Jesus in every context in which we walk. And so, don't do it insincerely. Do it if you mean it. Or at least you want to mean it. Okay? Pray these words with me. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. May it be with me according to your word. Amen. See you next week.